pleasure to be back and to uh, have a chance to fill in here for Mike Lee. Mike's with his wife and kids and grandkids at Disney World. Mike Lee at Disney World. Can you see that? I don't think the grandkids will even get on any of the rides. I think Mike will be jumping in first, don't you? I'd love to have a video of that. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. In the fall of 1777, we were in the middle of the American Revolution, and we were losing. In fact, the British had a force of 12,500 men camped just outside Philadelphia, which, if you remember at the time, was the capital of this fledgling nation. They were ready to attack. Now, our commander was General George Washington. One day, he was reconnoitering in the woods, riding on his famous white Arabian stallion ranger, looking for the best place to position our troops to oppose the British. All of a sudden, he stumbles upon a British sentry. Now, this was no ordinary British sentry. It was a man named Captain Patrick Ferguson. And Ferguson was the man who invented the first breech-loading rifle. It was a weapon that could actually fire the unheard-of pace of six rounds every minute. And it was far, far more accurate than the, the muskets that all the other soldiers used. Not only that, Ferguson was not your ordinary sentry because he had a reputation for being the finest marksman in the entire British Army. And he was holding one of the weapons that he himself invented. When he saw Washington come riding out of the woods, Ferguson immediately called to him to stop and surrender. But Washington had a reputation for being cool under fire, so he just reined his horse around and cantered off in the opposite direction. And when he did that, Ferguson raised that rifle and took aim at Washington's back. George Washington was six foot three. His Arabian stallion was 15 hands tall. That's a tough target to miss, don't you think? But Ferguson never pulled the trigger. He never fired. In fact, he said later, I just, I just couldn't bring myself to shoot an unarmed man in the back. But what if he did? What if George Washington had died that day in September of 1777? Because historians all agree that when it came to the American Revolution, Washington was irreplaceable. Would we have lost the American Revolution? Would we still be a British colony to this day? All I can say is, God save the queen. How about you? <laughs> that story comes from a book called What If? The world's foremost military historians imagine what might have been. What if George Washington had been killed that day? What if Napoleon had actually won at Waterloo? What if General Robert E. Lee had actually won the Battle of Gettysburg? What if the Allied landings on the beaches of Normandy in June of 1944 had actually failed? All those things almost happened but didn't. But what if they had? What I want to do this evening is play a game of what if with you with one of the most famous characters from the Old Testament, and his name is King David. You remember him. Now, it's interesting that some characters are never remembered alone they're always remembered as a duo. They're always remembered as a part of a pair, right? Nobody ever remembers Romeo. It's always Romeo and... Yeah, there you go. It's Abbott and... There you go. It's Batman and... Yep, it, it's dumb and... Dumber, there you go. Who can remember dumb without thinking of dumber, right? 
People are just destined to be remembered sometimes as part of a a duo. And the same is true of King David. David was famous in his own right, but somehow when we think of David, it's always David and... Now, the different thing about David is he was a part of different duos. In fact, there were four pairings in David's life that actually defined his life and that have something to teach us this evening. So I want to have you look at each of these pairings briefly. And the first... David and Jonathan. Some of you actually said that. A thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, Israel was just this loose-knit confederation of 12 tribes, and they didn't get along with each other at all. They were always squabbling to see who was biggest, who was best, and who would be in charge of everybody else. Long about that time, Israel began to have trouble from the Philistines. So the Israelites looked around and said to themselves, you know what we need? We need a king here. We need somebody that can pull this loose-knit confederation together, and we need somebody who can fight our battles for us. We need a king like all the surrounding nations. So Israel chose its first king, and that was a man named Saul. What were Saul's qualifications to be king? He had three qualifications. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And that was all pretty much the same criteria we use to elect some of our officials today right? Now, Saul becomes king. He's got some sons. His oldest son is named Jonathan, and if Saul is king, I guess that makes Jonathan a prince, don't you think? Okay, so what kind of a prince, what kind of a guy was Jonathan anyway? Well, Jonathan first appears to us in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and there's a scene here that reveals his character. See, Israel is at war with the Philistines. Saul should be, as king, leading the battle, He's got 600 soldiers with him one day, and they're pretty much just lounging by the pool because they're in no mood to fight. Jonathan is a little more active. He's looking for action, so he's out looking for a fight with the Philistines. So he goes out with his personal armor bearer. In ancient times, if you were in the army, if you were a soldier, and if you came from wealth or prestige, like let's say you're a prince, then you got yourself a personal armor bearer. He was sort of a military caddy. I picture him in baggy knickers, argyle socks, a cap that said tailor-made or ping in Hebrew, right? Yeah. And he carried a big plaid bag that was filled with swords and spears and stuff like that. That's what his job was. His job was to haul your weapons around for you so that by the time you got to the battle, you weren't tired already. And he would probably make recommendations. I'd say it's about a good 100 yards to the enemy there. Uh, I'd go for the bow, because you're never going to make that with a spear. And watch out for the sand on the left, okay? Just be careful for that. So Jonathan and his personal armor bearer, they are out looking for Philistines. And they walk through a narrow pass, craggy cliff on both sides. Then on one side, Jonathan spots a Philistine garrison of 20 enemy soldiers. Now, it's Jonathan, Caddy, 20 enemy soldiers. So what kind of a guy is Jonathan? What does Jonathan do in a situation like that? Well, you find his response in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, notice... Jonathan doesn't say, I'll tell you what, why don't you go on to the clubhouse? I got some fighting to do. 
No, what he says to the armor bearer is, let's go, right? So what does the armor bearer say in response? He says, I haven't been feeling well lately, his armor bearer said. I need to take a sick day. Now that was a test to see whether you're paying attention or not. Because some of you wrote that in your notes, didn't you? Caddy took a sick day. That's the Old Testament, go figure. I don't, yeah. Now that's not what he said. His actual response is recorded in 1 Samuel 14, 6. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. Now what we have here is the original Dumb and Dumber. Because if you have a military background or any knowledge of military tactics, you know there are two fundamental rules, right? First, if you're badly outnumbered, you never mount a frontal attack. That's suicide. If you're outnumbered, you attack to the flank or the rear or maybe come up with some creative guerrilla maneuver. Never a frontal attack. Second rule, whoever has the high ground has the military advantage. Correct? What's the tactical situation here? The odds are 20 to 1, and they're at the top of the cliff. Jonathan will have to climb to them to kill them. And he says, attack. So what do you learn from this passage? What do you learn about the character of Jonathan? You learn, first of all, he's a man of great faith. Right? What Jonathan essentially says is, one person plus God is a majority. I'm not outnumbered here. That's what you call faith, right? He's a man of great faith, he is a man of great courage, and he is one tough dude because he manages to kill all 20 guys. Now, that brings us to the second pairing. First, David and Jonathan. Then a more famous one and the one most of you said, David and Goliath. Just a couple chapters later, we meet David for the very first time. And it's the story of David fighting with Goliath. And it's such a familiar story to all of you that I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Essentially, Israel is at war with the Philistines. But their armies are almost equal in number. So they're each camped out on an opposing hillside with a big valley in between. Every day they all go to the locker room and dress out for battle. And every day they line up facing each other with a valley in the middle. But nobody will fire the first shot because they're so even and numbered that nobody can determine what the outcome's going to be. Nobody wants to take the chance. So they basically just dress out, line up, do a few cheers, go home for the day, right? Then the Philistines come up with a bright idea. Hey, why don't we just do this? Let's each pick a champion that represents our side. They will meet in the center. They'll fight it out. Winner take all. Now, that's a very good plan when you happen to have a champion who's nine foot five and three quarter, and that was Goliath of Gath. Obviously, the Israelites weren't biting, right? So what would happen is Goliath would come out every day, and he would issue a challenge to the Israelites. He did it morning and evening for 40 straight days. Yeah, that's right. 80 times Goliath issues this challenge. And he's got to goad them into action. So he begins to insult them, challenge their manhood, insult the God of Israel. Now, where's David? Well, David is the youngest of eight sons. The three oldest sons are a part of Saul's army. They were dressing out in the front lines every day and not doing much else. David's the youngest, probably 14, maybe 15 at the time, too young to fight in the army. David's job was to make the seven or eight mile journey every day to bring refreshments to his brothers. 
So one day he does, brings refreshments to the front lines. That was safe to do because nobody was doing any fighting. And when David is on the front lines, he hears Goliath issue that challenge and goad the army of Israel by insulting them and their God. And you know how the story goes, right? David says, I will fight him. Saul allows him to. He's too young and too small even to wear armor. He goes out unprotected with nothing but a sling and a stone, but he's a very good shot who hits Goliath right center in the forehead, knocks him down dead. You know the story. That results in a rout by the army of Israel against the army of the Philistines. It's a great military victory that day. So Saul, who is king and a very shrewd politician, he knew what politicians have always understood, and that is whenever you meet a celebrity, get your picture taken because that way some of their fame will rub off on you. He knew David was about to become a folk hero, and you want your administration to be aligned with someone like that. So he brings David into his own household, right? And when they meet for the first time, there is Saul, there is David, and there is Jonathan. Jonathan meets David and knows what David has done, and this is his response. You can read it in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. Now it came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Well, no wonder, right? Because when Jonathan looked at David, it was like looking in a mirror. Wasn't it? When Jonathan looked at David, what he saw was a man of great faith, a man of great courage, and one tough guy. Sound familiar? So from this point on in their lives, they become closer than brothers. They loved each other. They helped each other. They saved each other's lives. They were cut from the same cloth, separated at birth. The problem is, 13 chapters later, the Israelites were in battle again with the Philistines. This time, David's not there. It's Saul and his sons, including Jonathan, and they're all killed on the field of battle. David loses his very closest friend. Now, the third pairing is one you probably haven't heard of before. This is David and Joab. See, when Saul dies, everybody knows that David is supposed to become the next king. But not everybody in the household of Saul is happy with that arrangement. So David becomes king of sort of the southern half of the kingdom, right? But Saul's family, they retain power in the north. So for the next several years, David's fighting battles on two fronts. He's fighting against what's left of the household of Saul for kingship of all Israel, and he's still fighting against the Philistines too. He's a king, though, and when you're a king, you've got all kinds of responsibilities, so you can't be fighting all the battles personally. What David needed was somebody to fill the role of commander of the army. It needed to be somebody with courage, somebody who was tough, someone who could command respect. So he gave the job to a man named Joab, and Joab was a very competent general, and he was brave, and he was a very tough guy. The problem is he was missing one element. He was not a man of faith, he was a liar and a schemer, and he was a guy that had no problem murdering his personal enemies whenever it served his own purpose. But that was the guy who was now second in command to David. Which brings us to our fourth pairing, 
David and Bathsheba. Anybody say that one? It's a famous duo. David and Bathsheba is an interesting story. It was spring, the time when kings go out to battle. Why is spring the time when kings go out to battle? Because winter is the rainy season in Israel, and it's hard to march through mud. Everybody waits for the spring when the ground dries out. So it's spring when the kings go out to battle, only David isn't out to battle with his army. For some reason that we're not told, he decides to hang around the palace, and he's wandering around on the palace one day, looking down into neighboring courtyards. That's a privilege you have when you're a king, because you've got one of the only multi-story dwellings in town. He looks down into a neighboring yard, and he sees a beautiful young woman bathing in the backyard. Now, you women, just make a note of this. Please do not bathe in the backyard. You're just asking for trouble, I'm telling you. And men, do not hang out on the rooftop looking down into the neighbor's yard. Send a drone like everybody else does. Right? But that's the scenario. David sees this beautiful, naked woman, desires her, sends for her, sleeps with her, and as you know the story, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Now, even if Bathsheba had been a single woman, that would have been a sin, a crime against her in that culture. But the problem was bigger than that because she was not a single woman. She was a married woman. She was married to a man named Uriah the Hittite, and he was a very courageous warrior, and he was off at war with the rest of the army. Uh-oh. So what happens when this baby is born? How do we explain this pregnancy in the absence of her husband? David needs to come up with a scheme to cover up what he's done wrong. So what he does is he sends for Uriah the Hittite, as if he's bringing him home just to get an update on what's new at the front, how's the battle going. He has Uriah over for dinner, serves him a lot of wine to loosen him up, and then tells Uriah to go home and enjoy the evening with his wife. Now, you know what he's doing, right? If he can get Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife, then the baby comes a month early. Hey, that happens all the time. He has covered it up. Now, the problem is Uriah is a most unusual man because Uriah thinks to himself, hey, my colleagues, my band of brothers, they're all sleeping in the mud. They're in trenches on the front lines. Am I supposed to go home and enjoy the evening with my wife? I won't do that. So instead, he just camps out in the front yard in his tent. Now David's got a really big problem, doesn't he? Because he's still got to cover this up. So what does he do? What he does is he writes out an order that will be sent by the hand of Uriah the Hittite to Joab, the commander of the army. The order says, place this man on the front lines and order the troops around him to withdraw from him so that he's exposed and isolated and that he'll be killed. And it worked. Exactly like that. So that means Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is a single woman. David is free to take her as a wife. And when the baby comes a month early, no one will be the wiser. So what you have is the David, the man of God, the man of faith, David who had become David the adulterer, is now David the murderer. And what an irony that Uriah, good man that he was, carried his own death notice in his own hand and handed it to Joab, the commander of the army. Never knew, never knew what was written in there, his own death notice. So what if? What if Jonathan didn't die with his father that day in battle? What if 
Jonathan had taken a sick day or had just survived the battle, fierce warrior that he was. When it came time for David to become king, and everybody knew David would become king, not Jonathan. Even Jonathan was okay with that. When David became king, who do you think would have gotten the number two job in the kingdom? Who do you think David would have placed as commander of the army? Would you look for a man of faith, man of courage, and one tough guy? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, the job would have gone to Jonathan. What if... On that weakest and worst of David's days, when he wrote that death notice for Uriah the Hittite, what if Uriah had handed that message not to Joab, but to Jonathan? What would have happened? I have a feeling that a note would have been sent back. I have a feeling the note would have said something like, Hey, Dave, how you doing, bro? Just thought I'd let you know Uriah the Hittite is in perfect health and will remain so. We haven't talked for a while. I think I'll stop by the palace tomorrow. Let's grab a cup of coffee. See you then. Love, Jonathan. But on David's worst of days, Joab was there to let him slide. His relationships failed him. Did you ever see this saying? I love this. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Think about that one for a minute. You know what that means? It means we grow to be like the people we spend time with. Human beings are designed to grow in relationship. We help each other grow. Did you know that 59 times in the New Testament we are told to do something for one another? the famous one another passages. Here's a kind of a sample. We are to love one another. We are to serve one another. We are to honor one another, encourage one another, bear with one another, build up one another. These are the things that we are supposed to do for each other because this is what we all need to grow, right? I need someone who will love me if I'm to grow. I need someone who's going to encourage me. I need someone who will be patient with me, who will bear with me, I need someone who will build me up, and so do you. That's what we all need to grow as human beings. You know, the problem with church is that you can approach church like a consumer, can't you? You can approach this church as if it was a buffet. Look at all the good stuff on the buffet. You can come in here, and you can get yourself a plate full. You can head back to your table, head down, and chow, right? Like a consumer, But church was never meant to be like a buffet. Church was meant to be more like one of those fine European restaurants where a meal can last for hours and the waiter never brings you the check until you ask for it to offer the check as an insult. That's because a buffet is all about food, but a fine restaurant is all about friends. It's all about fellowship, isn't it? It's possible to come to hope Grab yourself a plateful of all this good stuff and get out of here without even making eye contact with another human being. Isn't that true? The irony is you can come here week after week. You can take part in all this wonderful stuff, the great worship, the music, the inspiring videos, Mike's great teaching, but never grow. Never grow. Because the truth is growth takes place in relationship. And that's why we have to put ourselves in places where there are relationships. Where did David go wrong? How did David and Goliath 
turn into David and Bathsheba. How bad a turn can you make? How, how, how did that happen? What was his problem? Was it lust? Was it pride? Was it, was it greed? Well, the truth is, David became like the average of the people he spent the most time with. And early in his life, he lost the best influence he would ever have. A better relationship would have changed David's life. So what do we learn from these five pairings from David's life? What's our takeaway here tonight? I'm going to give you three. Three action points. You ready? First, slow down. Switch to decaf. Write that down in your notes. Switch to decaf. When you came to church tonight, did you back into your parking space? I'm talking to you men. Did, did you leave the engine running? And did you leave the driver's side window down so that you could slide into the window? Do you run out so fast and hit the gas that you leave your wife and kids standing in the parking lot again? Because, you know, this is really not a NASCAR event. This is church. So the action point is, on your way out this evening, make actual eye contact with another human being. How's that? Or, or better, one another somebody on the way out. I'll show you that list again. Remember, love one another, serve one another, honor one another, encourage one another, bear with, build. Look that list over and think about the people you know and that you see here every week. Is there somebody here tonight that you just need to love on a little bit? They need that from you. That would help them grow. Is there some act of service you should perform before you escape? Is there someone you need to honor, somebody in a position of service that nobody ever recognizes, maybe what they need is to be honored? Is there somebody that looks a little down that you should encourage? Is there somebody you need to be a little more patient with because they take too long to tell you a story? When you ask them how you're doing, they actually answer. <laughs> is there somebody you need to build up a little bit? Because you see, these are the commands that we're given in Scripture. These are the things we're to do for one another because this is how all of us grow. Here's another takeaway. Join a small group. You know, it's a funny thing. We look at this and we think this, this is church. Oh, and by the way, we have these extra things we call small groups. Yeah, you can take those or leave those. But the reality is, if growth takes place in relationship. And if the church is all about the building up of the body, then that means those small groups, that's church. And you know what this is? The place where we carry out the rituals of the church. The ritual of worship, the ritual of baptism, even the ritual of teaching. But if the church is about edification and growth, then those small groups, wherever you find relationship, that's church. Here's the third takeaway. Choose yourself a role model. A psychologist named C.L. Rose once said, when we walk with great men and women, we seek almost unconsciously to match their stride. What was he saying? He's saying just by being around someone, you become like them. So if we grow to be like the people we spend time with, who do you want to be like? Look around you. Who do you want to be like here? Whose marriage looks good to you? You better hang out with them. Who's raising their kids so that their kids are turning out the way you hope yours do? You want to have a relationship with them. Who has the kind of character 
who, who talks, who listens, who is modeling a lifestyle that you would like to emulate. Well, you don't just take notes on people like that. You spend time, you build relationship. You see, you cannot choose your family, but you can choose your friends. Poor David, he lost his Jonathan. But seriously, do you really think Jonathan was the only Jonathan in all of Israel? I'll bet there were guys like him. Whose fault was it that Jonathan was gone and Joab stepped in? That was David's fault. You see, Mike can teach you week after week, but he, he can't make you form relationships. That's a choice that you have to make for yourself. September of 1918, the whole world was at war. We were in the middle of World War I. There was a British soldier named Private Henry Tandy serving in France. And after a battle with the Germans one day, he came across a wounded German, a wounded man who just stumbled across his line of fire, a 29-year-old Lance Corporal. And so Private Tandy raised his rifle, aimed but he never pulled the trigger because, he said later, I just couldn't bring myself to finish off a soldier who was already wounded. That 29-year-old Lance Corporal was Adolf Hitler. What if he had pulled the trigger? What if Hitler had died in 1918? What if Jonathan didn't die on the field of battle so that at David's weakest moment... It was Jonathan to receive that message and not Joab. And what if we stopped thinking of the church as our buffet, where we come and grab what looks tasty to us and head out, head down? What if we learn the lesson that this is a place for all of us to edify and be edified by spending time with other people? What if? Let me pray for us, okay? Thank you, Father, for your word and its lessons and challenges for us from 3,000 years ago, all we can learn. We're grateful to you. Father, you told us, grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ. Okay, we want to do that. So help us to overcome our individualism and our isolation. Help us to do the one another's for one another. And as we do, help us all to grow in you. Thank you. We love you.